This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. That's King, Josh King. Again, this week from London, where the curtain went up last night on Skyfall. The 23rd installment in the James Bond franchise, it opens in U.S. theaters November 9th. By the time Daniel Craig comes up on American screens, we'll know whether we'll be inaugurating a 45th president in January, or we'll stick with the model we have for another four years. So we move on, pulling back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, as I said last week, and maintain the only show of its kind on either side of the Atlantic, and it's only on POTUS. This week, a reunion of Newton South High School class of 1983. Here in London, I'm with Adam Rossman, former federal prosecutor and White House staff secretary, and from California, Lebo, Mark Leibovich, chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. Lebo's been on the show before, and we've been pals since, oh, 1968 or so. Rossman's a newer friend. We only met in 1975. Then we're really going back in time. 1861 or thereabouts, Walter Starr is here. He's the author of the new book Seward, Lincoln's Indispensable Man. The former Secretary of State is more than the Hillary Clinton of his day. With Steven Spielberg's biopic of the 16th president set to open soon, with David Strathern playing Seward, we've got on-field access to the team of rivals. But first, let's head back to high school and college with Adam Rossman and Mark Leibovich. Welcome, fellas, to Polyoptics. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. Levo, what are you doing in California? Um, you know, actually, this is um, this is sort of a dirty little secret, but I'm actually I'm speaking at colleges. The New York Times has a program in which um, certain reporters get uh, you know junkets out to California or nice places like this and uh, speak to groups of colleges and try to promote newspaper readership at a early and formative age. And I'm talking about the election at Occidental College tonight. And um, Loyola. It's not uh, an accident, Marinette. is it? What's that? It's not an accident that you're at Occidental. No, no, I'm doing this on purpose. <laughs> Leib, do you just freeform talk, or do you do you have an outline of what you talk? You know, about? it's funny. I sort of like uh, the uh, my strategy for these things sort of mimics my schooling strategy, which is just sort of to wing it. <laughs> and it didn't usually go so well in school, but um, usually what you know, my strategy is here is to um, very earnestly talk about how reporters aren't really lecturers, and uh, we we. We prefer to like a, a much more conversational format. Perfect. So, you Perfect. know, I want this to be as interactive as possible. So please <laughs> interrupt me with, with questions. And that's sort of my built-in excuse not to prepare at all, which explains why I've spent the morning um, doing things uh, other than preparing. But uh, anyway, I'll throw some notes together today. Well, let's talk about the most important news. The Patriots beat the Jets last week. Adam and I watched it together late night in London with Sky Sports commentators. With the visiting Patriots coming here in London on Sunday to face the home team, St. Louis Rams, let's hear a little of the typically illuminating news conference from Bill Belichick after the game in Foxborough. Okay, well, we've uh, you know we talked about playing 60 minutes, and, and it took a little bit more than that today, but you know, players did a good job. They really they fought hard. We had our ups and downs, and and um, in the end, we just we didn't have made enough plays to win, and uh, that's what it's all about. So, got good contributions from all three units, and. Uh, we just got to keep working harder to, to get better, to do things better, and um, you know, eliminate a few of the mistakes that we had. But you know, I'm proud of the team. I thought they played mentally and physically tough. And uh, like I said, in the end, made enough plays to win. So you know, it's on to St. Louis. On to St. Louis and London. Levo, Adam, your thoughts and memories of our long football heritage together. Levo, it's got to go back to my handwritten letter to Jim Plunkett, right? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I want to point out that in addition to, like, you now having to resort to having your, your school friends on your show, <laughs> you're now filling time with Bill Belichick press conferences. So uh, right. this is a particularly momentous day, I think, for the polyoptics community. Um, yeah, no, uh, Josh and I and uh, Adam, we, we used to, like, play football, and, and we were Patriots fans and Josh uh, I think invited Jim Plunkett um, then the bright young quarterback uh, of the Patriots to dinner um, I don't think that <laughs> invitation was ever accepted or um, rejected either way well I have, I have a couple of very specific thoughts on this topic sure. that, that go back and forth in time first the game on Sunday night I thought when who fumbled McCordy Devin McCordy when he fumbled I thought we were seeing the beginning of the end of the Tom Brady era 
Patriots. That 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 play was so pathetic, and that the Jets were going to win, and we were seeing it start then. But going way back in time, Lebo, I was thinking about the, our games at the Pump House too. But my initial, my my first impression of football joy was, I think, it was the 1976 Patriots when they when they beat the Raiders. 48-13, and eventually lost to them in the AFC Championship. It was Ken Stabler, Bill, uh, and Fred Bolitnikoff days. Yeah, it was the roughing the passer uh, game. The roughing the, the passer roughing call. The, passer. the roughing the passer yeah. call. And we really have hit rock bottom. And I'm polyopics. <laughs> I'm yeah, opining was, was, about my memories of Patriots. <laughs> what about the 1977 right. season? I believe uh, did they make the playoffs that year? <laughs> then there was the 81 season, the Ron Meyer era. <laughs> All right, let's let's stay back into polyopics. Adam, uh, what was the path that led this nice Jewish boy into the rough and tumble of the late John Silber's campaign for governor of Massachusetts, and then the hard scrabble hallways of Stamford Law School, and then Washington D.C. Uh, always had the political bug. Uh, going back to our our campaign for for president and for, against Minnie, Mark and Minnie against Mark and Minnie in high school. Uh, <laughs> so, so <laughs> right, we lost to Mark Leibovich. That's right. Uh, so after after college and a and a brief stint in the advertising world in New York, <clears throat> uh, joined Silber's campaign in Massachusetts. We ultimately lost to Bill Weld and Silber was controversial, but I think ahead of his times in retrospect. Conservative Democrat, um, in I think echoed uh, four or so years later by, by Bill Clinton's win. Um, controversial guy, but a, a fascinating first foray into politics for me. Yeah, and actually, Silver, I have, like, Silver's strategy of alienating everyone was a very interesting <laughs> one. Um, because wasn't he? And then he sort of didn't he jump down the throat of Natalie Jacobson, um, the beloved TV anchor for WCVB Channel Five, um, it, it, like like a few days before the election. It's truly that's why he lost. But he did he did he did you'll remember beat Evelyn Murphy and and Frank Bellotti. Frank Bellotti. Francis X. Sure. Francis X. in the in the primary, which was a huge upset. Yeah, And absolutely. was 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 uh, leading well by, I don't know, five, many six, points. seven, many points yeah. before, before right, that disastrous interview <laughs> with Natalie. I mean, which, that was which, pretty funny. I mean, he basically, I mean, they were, he had a big lead. Uh, it was, I mean, couldn't have been more than a week out, right? And, and so the idea was, let's have the most beloved newscaster come into my living room <laughs> and let's yeah. yell at her and, yeah. and, and just terrify her and, and all viewers <laughs> and see how that plays. And then I think well won pretty comfortably, right? Uh, he, I think he won by three or four points. Yeah, right? whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he was a great uh, educator, though, Dr. Silber was. He was, he was. But staying on the Massachusetts meme, uh, as Lebo and I often uh, go back and forth on, uh, you are the objective journalist. You're the chief uh, national correspondent for the New York Sunday Times Magazine. But there was a time when you were indeed very political. Tell us about what led you to victory in 1982 uh, and the under-ticket with Carolyn Bess against uh, Adam um, Rossman and Josh King. This is interesting, um, and I don't think this has ever been discussed publicly, at least in my adult life. <laughs> so this is a polyoptic scoop. Um, I, um, yeah, no, I, I was a candidate for Newton South Class of '83 vice president, and my strategy was in, in seeking class-wide office, uh, and I was going over, uh, you know, up against some pretty popular, you know, candidates, i.e., Josh and Adam, uh, Bobo and Butts. That's right, um, Lisa the, the, the ticket of Lisa Butters and Mike David, Mike Bobo Davidson. Uh, anyway, I my my basic philosophy on this was find someone who would be the president, who would do all the work, and who you know had sort of a serious reputation, who might balance the ticket and you know balance my lack of seriousness, which was sort of my thing in high school. I, I was not that serious a student. You haven't I lost that, my, Lebo. Don't worry. You haven't lost that thing. Well, I, I ha well you see, my, my parents used to criticize me for not, um, quote-unquote, applying myself, <laughs> um, which, again, I'm, I'm proving today and not preparing for my speech to uh, college students. But um, anyway, so, yeah, we, we had a very, very vigorous campaign, um, and we won. Um, the Mark and Mini ticket won. Uh, I was sort of surprised by this. And unfortunately, that was sort of the high point. And I remember then actually having to serve in the office of the vice presidency. I, I kind of... Learned firsthand that, that <laughs> who was it the uh, that said that the, the office of the vice presidency isn't worth a, a bucket of warm piss warm or spit. piss or spit or something like that. Anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, Minnie and I had our issues, uh, most of them relating <laughs> to me not doing anything. <laughs> and, Lebo, um, and 
and yeah, so then, um, so yeah, but then it actually has fallen upon me to be blamed every 10 years for not organizing the reunion. That's, that's right. Do you remember, um, as your as your opponents, what our campaign slogan was? No guts, no glory. Exactly, which was then amended to <laughs> no guts, no glory, no, no victory. victory. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you finish like fourth or fifth or we something? Did, we like we that? did at least third. And we at were we third. were we were the well-funded campaign. We used um, Julie Cohen's father, who is a professional printer, to right. print up posters for us. Right. Uh, I was using all sorts of modern uh, Axelrodian <laughs> techniques yeah. to, to raise our profile. Yeah. And it totally fell flat. Yeah. And, and all and kinds we were of so... like super PACs, right? Exactly. We had, we had a lot of outside funding. We were we, we used. Um... And remember, we were so pathetic that we couldn't even choose who was going to be president or vice president. <laughs> so we, so we were co-presidents. Co <laughs> 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 yeah, I um, yeah, I had I had no problem being the uh, the vice president. And in a way, um, Julie's dad was kind of the Sheldon Adelson of his time, right? He was, <laughs> he was. the Sheldon Adelson yeah. of his time. Yeah, yeah. true. So the reason you're not able to dispense with your statutory vice presidential duties of the Newton South class of 83 is because you're so focused on your work as the columnist for Denebola and the on the mark column. Uh, do you do you have any of those framed up on the wall? The on the marks? Uh, I don't, unfortunately. I think they're in a box somewhere. They're, they I actually read read them not long ago. They weren't very funny. <laughs> what was the, I didn't what was really the idea? myself. What was the strategy going in? Um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's interesting. Um, I, I, they never let me be an editor, like all my friends, like you guys. I mean, like, yeah, Adam was, was, uh, was sports sport editor Mini, I, with Mini Best, I think. and I was news. Yeah, yeah. no, no, yeah. it was a very um, hierarchical sort of um, achievement-oriented <laughs> group, uh, ultimately. And, Just like seven. Uh, my only way in was to like be a columnist. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that was my that was my thing. Adam, today, 2012, we're in London, but we were also in London together in 1985 as students. You at the London School of Economics and me at King's College. Uh, it's an important year because of another thing that was happening at the Barbican Center, right? Right. Um, you, we were, we were roommates, and you came to back to the apartment. And you said, "I saw a show, second night it ever opened." Just a little musical. Just a little musical called Les Misérables. And you said you got to go see it. So I went. So I saw it the third night. Wait, you saw it again? Yeah, I saw it again. I think the, we saw. I saw it three times. That's three times. Uh, the beginning of Les Misérables. And so we'll be talking later about another blockbuster opening uh, movie next week or in November called uh, Lincoln by Steven Spielberg. But at Christmas we've got Hugh Jackman, Russell Crowe, and Anne Hathaway. Um, let's hear a little bit of the trailer from Les Misérables coming out of Christmas. I dreamed a dream in time gone by When hope was high, life worth living I dreamed that love would never die I dreamed that God would be forgiving nothing on us because with me as Javert and you as Jean Valjean we would do something like this at last Valjean you see each other plain Monsieur Le Maire you'll wear a different shade before you say another word Javert before you chain me up like a slave again listen to me there is something I must it all began Dude, in 1985 we but still have it let's get back to Lebo moving ahead 30 years Lebo your fear the loathing on the campaign trail in the Times has anointed you by some as the conscience of journalistic guilt of campaign 2012. <laughs> How bad has it actually been? Uh, it's actually, you know, it's it's gotten better. Um, because of your story, it's gotten better, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I like to think that I, I changed everything. No, look, I mean, I, I was very open in this story. It ran, I guess, in, um, I think it was early September. Um, about how I just found the campaign to be very dispiriting, very negative. It didn't look like either candidate was having very much fun. Um, it, it just it seemed, you know, quite beyond any doubt that that um, Washington would change at all. And, and I was pretty open about it. I mean, I'm I'm a magazine writer now, and, and I actually have the opportunity to write with a little bit more of a, of a point of view and a sensibility and. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I don't like to write personal pieces that often. I think you have to pick your spots, but but that was one in which I um, sort of wanted to frame a a kind of tour of the campaign um, in, in a few discrete weeks. 
through my own um, experience with it. And so that's what I did. And it, it did seem to strike a nerve, but I do think it's gotten better. I mean, I think as, as um, things have picked up, I mean, it actually hasn't been that negative a campaign. I think not as negative as people thought. Um, I think the debates have been really um, pretty vigorous. And, and look, I mean, it's a really close race and we're less than two weeks out. So if you like politics and, and you care about the country, it's uh, it's pretty hard not to be engaged. So. Lebo, question about the uh, negative aspect of the campaigns. It, it feels like to me every four years, maybe every two years, everyone says, particularly in presidentials, this is the worst campaign ever, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Isn't it true that we? it's always that bad? Uh, going back decades, Nixon, Kennedy, yeah. it's always been mudslinging. It's always been negative. It's just the way it is. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think that, that we do always have sort of a narcissistic love affair with um, with the current times, and and I think you know history is sort of a casualty of that. But um, look, I do think that there have been some unique aspects of this that have been sort of singularly unpleasant. I and mean, part of it is um, just the money and the super PACs, and and just I just found it very unseemly that you know, so many hundreds of millions of dollars are just being poured into this um, right. at a time when the, when the nation's economy is really lagged. And, and, and also, I mean, new media has, has really created and things like Twitter and, and, um, and, and just sort of the Internet-fueled um, campaign conversation has, has made it a real treadmill. And, and, you know, in my business, it's just really changed things. And, and I think in the political business, it's just really made for a, a much less reflective and much more... Um, you know, just a real sprint. And, and I think that a lot of the, the greater meaning of this does get sort of lost. So, yeah, I mean, maybe this is more of a, this is as much a product of my own experience with it as, as anything. But I do think that you're right. I mean, I think people do lose sight of you know, how things were and they get nostalgic for times that were not, um, not much better, if not much worse. But in, in any case, whatever the truth of that is, you should use this point in your lecture later today with the college kids. <laughs> you know, I do, actually. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, this will this will be very, very good. And, and of course, it'll be a good um, launching point into getting questions from the audience. <laughs> well, I, I welcome that. Well, you, you're in California today, but uh, on Sunday, the Jacksonville Jaguars travel to Green Bay on Sunday to take on the Packers. Are you and your sports pal, Paul Ryan, going to be cracking open some more cold ones and whipping up some wings at a tailgate outside Lambeau Field? Um, you know, I don't think, I mean, maybe, I just haven't been invited yet. I, I'm not holding my breath. Um, yeah, no, I, I just I had a piece in the Sunday magazine, uh, ran a couple of days ago, um, on Paul Ryan, and, and he, for whatever reason, uh, allowed me to come watch uh, a Monday night football game with him involving the Packers and the Seattle Seahawks in his hotel room in, in uh, Cincinnati. And, um, yeah, they had barbecue, they had beer, and, and look, it was a... Uh, it was. It was. I was surprised that he let me do this. I was surprised to be invited, but I was thrilled for the um, thrilled for the, the sort of look at, at how he watches a football game. And, and obviously, it was a transaction, and it was he knew he was on, and he knew there was a reporter in the room. But uh, but no, I'm not. Uh, I have not been um, holding my breath for a return engagement. Uh, Adam, the uh, we are at the end of debate season, as Mark pointed out, and a, a great season it was. But going back. Uh, to 1996, you know, there were so many stories this time about the de the debate camp and debate prep that uh, Governor Romney or President Obama either focused on or decided to blow off. But back in 96, you were part of that team with President Clinton right. at uh, Chautauqua. What was that like for a young man? Uh, great experience. I was Erskine Bowles was, was running debate prep, and Vicki Rad was helping Erskine, and I was helping both of them. So I uh, did it was a glorified gopher, but right in the middle of it. Um, <clears throat> it's amazing. It's, it's an amazing setup, and I imagine Obama and Romney do something very similar. Basically, the, the campaigns decamp to a location for three days before. They set up a stage that is almost identical to the actual stage. They run through question after question with uh, whatever the format of the, that debate's going to be. Um, and it's... it's uh, incredibly thorough my experience with President Clinton was um, I I was in the audience playing an audience member we were practicing for the town hall and I asked a question uh, having to do with the foreign policy of Poland <laughs> and he was he because he had been prepped he was able to answer it so I one thing I heard I heard talked about after the first debate that I didn't didn't agree with just from my own experience is that 
uh, Obama hadn't, President Obama hadn't prepared well enough or the team hadn't prepared well enough. I'm not sure why he didn't perform that well, but I, I doubt it was because the team Adam, I'm actually sort of curious. Did you, did you require any special training to play an audience member uh, <laughs> in the debate prep? I mean, did anyone train you? None. None. Uh, Le- Levo, your reflections on debate season now that it's in the rearview mirror? Um, you know, I thought it was, they were really good debates. I mean, I think, um, I, I don't remember, I mean, the first debate, just Romney pretty decisively winning, I think most people would say. I mean, I don't, I don't really remember any president, presidential debate recently that's, that's really turned a race around as that did. Um, and, and really, I mean, it, it gave Romney a momentum that's lasted really to this day, it would seem. Um, I think, you know, obviously, the, I think most people would say, and I agree with, that the president you know, recovered nicely in the last two debates. Um, I actually thought that... Um, the last debate was the best debate in some ways, but uh, no, they were really fun. And and one thing that they do open your eyes to, especially as someone who has written about you know the campaign in general, is that look these these people are very prepared and they're very qualified. I mean, you need to play at a really 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 high level to be up on that stage. And um, again, it's sort of a it's quaint and it's not that you know it's pretty obvious on some levels, but it's it's nice to sort of see two individuals who are really at the top of their game um, as they're coming down to the wire. And I thought, you know, that certainly uh, was true of both candidates. So we are down to the wire, Mark, and less than three weeks to go. Uh, What's left to write about after the campaign? I mean, you are the national correspondent for the magazine. Are there national issues? Suddenly, are we going to see Mark Leibovich writing about the food supply or the existence of unicorns? Yeah, I'll be writing a lot about the food supply. <laughs> in fact, as as phone, I'm going to diminish the food supply um, before they stop serving breakfast at the hotel. Now, um, I, I think, I mean, first of all, the dirty little secret when you're a magazine writer is that our lead times are such that I'm pretty much done with, with like, the big stories. I mean, I have a piece that's running this Sunday in the Sunday style section on the Florida Senate race, and I did um, the Q&A column that we have in the front of the magazine um, I did it this. I'm doing it next week. Um, it was an interview with Joe Lieberman, who's uh, retiring, and I, you know, I helped out with some smaller things. But, but essentially, I, I do think that you know, journalism is a, is a bit of a casualty of these last few weeks because I think a lot of newspapers, I know we do, we're, we're very hesitant to put any real bombshell stories in the paper that have been long in the making uh, that might really turn the race. Um, I think. You know, what, it, things really do get interesting after there's a result, and you have um, you, you have a new administration coming in one way or the other, and that's when new, real news gets broken, right? I mean, right now the news is essentially the horse race. You know what both candidates are going to be doing uh, every day. I mean, it's not going to. I mean, there might be a surprise, but you can't count on it. Um, when one candidate wins, you just know that there's going to be a whole wave of really, really big and consequential stories on. You know who the next Secretary of Defense is going to be, who the next Secretary right. of State is going to be, and, and so forth. So, um, I, I think that's actually, a, in some ways, a, a better journalistic chase, and and more news is being made. But um, in the meantime, look, I mean, I, I'm as clueless as to how this is going to come out as anyone, and um, it's it's really uh, it's going to be really really close, and it's not that's not a scoop by by any stretch. But I think um, it'll be an interesting night. Lebo, as we let you go, give your loyal uh, readers an update of what's happening with your book and what what's really happening with your primary job, which is, of course, is tweeting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I have a book that's coming out uh, next year. Um, the deadline for me to turn in a draft is uh, Labor Day, which is now what, like uh, almost two months ago, right? Yeah. Um, but then I got an extension to October 15th, which was, <laughs> what, like 10 days ago? Yeah. And then um, I, I think I'll, I'll turn in a draft after the election. Um, but I'm going to take the, the chronology of the book, which is about it's about Washington and sort of the age of Obama and how uh, the, the media industrial complex and, and sort of this age has, has really changed politics or not changed politics at all in D.C. Um, it, the last scene is going to be either on election night or on inauguration day. So I have... A bookend to, to complete, and of course Twitter, uh, which I waste way too much time on, and which far more people seem to read than they do my actual articles. Um, uh, you can follow me at uh, at Mark Leibovich, all one word, and uh, that's you know you can see actually firsthand and in real time how I waste my time and, and why <laughs> I, I, exactly what I do instead of preparing to give speeches to impressionable uh, college students. <laughs> 
We're probably well, going to be busy reading their Twitter feeds anyway. <laughs> well, Mark, it's uh, it's great to catch up with you and to share some old memories. And uh, for all of our friends back in Washington, D.C., where Mark Leibovich is based, uh, here with Adam Rossman. Adam, for our friends back in D.C. that we've left so many years ago, let's mm. let's take them out with a little bit of Dulles Toll Road, shall yeah, we? Yeah, sure. Right, ready? One, <laughs> two, three. Dulles Toll Road, it's the Dulles Toll Road. Dulles Toll Road, it's the Dulles Toll Road. Dulles Toll Road, Dulles Toll Road. Dulles Toll Road, Dulles Toll Road. When the Dulles, when the Toll Road, when the Dulles Toll Road. I simply remember the Dulles Toll Road, and then I don't feel so bad. Thank you very much. Thanks. Levo, have a good speech tonight. See you, Leaves. That was awesome. Hey, I'll see you guys. All right, bye, Leaves. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. People of the United States. This is POTUS. And now, from the People's Republic of Cambridge, Massachusetts, by way of Stanford, Hong Kong, Washington, and now my favorite part of the world, Seacoast, New Hampshire, it's Walter Starr, author first of John Jay and now Seward, Lincoln's Indispensable Man, in your local independent bookseller like the Water Street Bookstore, right, Walter? Indeed. One of your favorite hangouts at your days at Exeter and when you get up there? Well, and um, about... Uh... A hundred yards from the dormitory where my wife, daughter, and I lived during the school year. Well, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks. But, you know, my favorite event of the year is the American Independence Festival in Exeter. Every July I'm there with my kid watching the reenactors. Well, uh, we're usually somewhere else because we're there during school years, and but typically... I, so I've not actually seen that uh, July event. I would like to some year, but we are... You're in D.C., California, some, somewhere else typically at that time of year. So independence is one thing, and John Jay played a big part in that, but saving the Union is quite another. What role did William H. Seward play in keeping our country together? Um, well, he's the Secretary of State throughout the Civil War, so part of his role is diplomatic. Um, and, um, you know, we tend to forget we focus on the battles and the the struggle in this country, we tend to forget the important struggles that occur um, keeping Britain and France out of the war. Um, both, there was concern, serious concern, that they were so dependent on Southern cotton that they would recognize the South in order to preserve their um, access to Southern cotton. Um, there was also um, the Northern blockade of the South and concern that some you know, incident in the blockade would blow up and turn into a war, um, something like the War of 1812, a sort of inadvertent right. war arising out of the blockade. The role of the Secretary of State in 1861, first of all, how did uh, William Seward get it? And uh, and then what were some, did the Secretary of State, like secretaries of today, travel to London and Paris to, uh, to speak with our either allies or adversaries? Seward gets the role in a very interesting way with a parallel to current politics. He's the odds-on favorite to be the Republican nominee in early 1860. If there had been such a thing as in-trade, Seward would have been trading at 80 cents. Right. And, and Lincoln would have been down in the low single digits or, or high, not maybe low single digits, maybe high single digits. Um, but um, as often happens in our political history, um, there are surprises, and Lincoln is the nominee. Seward... Uh, then becomes his main campaigner. The custom at the time prevents the candidates from campaigning. Seward campaigns tirelessly for Lincoln, and Lincoln rewards him by offering him the premier position in the cabinet, Secretary of State. Um, so that's the, the how he gets it part. Um, the role of Secretary of State um, is quite different for a number of reasons. Um, travel is almost impossible. So Seward doesn't go to Europe at any point during his tenure as Secretary of State. In fact, um, late in his tenure, in the roughly 1866, um, he's the first American Secretary of State ever to travel outside of the United States on official business. He goes down to the Caribbean to look at a few places that he might like to buy for us. 
So tell us about some of the incidents in your book in which um, the U.S. Navy did, in fact, sort of come to near blows with, with Britain. The most dramatic of these is the so-called Trent incident in which an aggressive Navy, U.S. Navy captain captures four Confederate diplomats from the deck of an unarmed British ship, the Trent. And when word of that reaches Britain, there's predictable outrage. It's an assault on the British flag, and um, Britain sends a, a note over to Seward um, demanding that the four prisoners be released from their captivity at a, an offshore fort in uh, Boston Harbor. The Guantanamo of its day. The Guantanamo of its day, Fort Warren in, uh, in Boston Harbor, a place that was you know, secure by virtue of just being offshore. Uh, and and an apology. And the popular mood is very much against that. The popular mood is to tell the British to go jump in a lake. I mean, in that very town, still smarting from what happened 40 years prior. Right. And Lincoln, although he, he expresses it much more elegantly, um, proposes something similar. He drafts a note that Seward might send to the British minister in Washington proposing international arbitration. Um, and that would have, if that note had gone to the British, um, I believe they would have seen that as just a stalling tactic and that they probably would have declared war on the United States. Seward persuades Lincoln and persuades the cabinet that that's not the right approach, that these four people don't matter, that we should give them up, um, and drafts a long note which turns around the popular mood when uh, he succeeds in making the northern public realize that it's consistent with American principles to give these people up. Um, and so when when it's all said and done, although people thought that Seward would lose his job over this, uh, he's more popular than he was before. Tell us about uh, William Seward's basic innate powers of persuasion, first on display probably in the mid-19th century as a defense lawyer of uh, a Negro named Freeman. Seward is a lawyer um, at a time when lawyers are less common than they are today, and, and a good one. Um, and he tries cases all the way up to the Supreme Court. But his most famous trial is that Freeman trial, a, a local murder trial, in which um, Freeman had killed an entire white family down to the two-year-old toddler. He was nearly lynched on the way to the jail. And the townspeople thought it, that no one should defend him. They thought the sooner justice was done, the better. Seward steps up to defend him and defends him on the basis of insanity. Freeman had been a prisoner, um, beaten so badly that he lost his hearing, and Seward presented medical evidence that he'd lost his sanity. Um, he loses at trial, but in a sense wins in the larger scheme of things because his his argument on behalf of Freeman that um, he was a man just like the jurors and they should treat him as one um, becomes perhaps one of the most famous 19th century oral arguments. He uses a quote uh, that I saw, still your brother and mine and bears equally with us the proudest inheritance of our race, the image of our maker. Fascinating in your book, uh, Walter, the role that uh, Seward's wife Francis played in assisting him in throughout his professional career. Did it start here? It starts before that, but that's one instance in which her role is particularly evident in part. Tell us about Francis. Uh, Francis um, Miller, uh, her maiden name, um, Mary Seward um, in Auburn, New York. She's quite young at the time, but quite well educated. She's gone to the most advanced school for women, Emma Willard's school. Um, and she is sort of throughout her life a little bit, I don't know, left-right, it's hard to translate, a little bit more of an abolitionist, a little bit more progressive than her husband. And so um, I'm not 100% sure that Seward would have defended William Freeman but for having his wife saying, you're going to do this, right? <laughs> um, and she continues down into the Civil War um, when Lincoln is under considerable abolitionist pressure to issue an Emancipation Proclamation and is resisting, and Seward thinks Lincoln's right to resist, he thinks the proclamation's not such a great idea, Francis writes to her husband and says, you know, 
unless Lincoln issues that proclamation, you're going to resign, right? Yeah, so let's hear a little bit from the forthcoming movie from Steven Spielberg, Lincoln, which is going to debut in theaters November 9th. And uh, for any of us who sort of get our periodic fix on mid-19th century American history from people like uh, Ken Burns and and writers like David McPherson and and uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, both Spielberg and Walter Starr in 2012 give us a great uh, brush-up on our history. Congress must never declare equal those whom God created unequal. Read the Constitution alone. We are stepped out upon the world stage now with the fate of human dignity in our hands. Blood's been spilled to afford us this moment now, now, now. Now, for those of you who have not yet gone on to uh, YouTube to watch the trailer, when when Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln in this in this incredible performance says now 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 he's pointing at david strathern as as seward tell us about the real relationship between these two guys once they started working at 1600 pennsylvania avenue well initially the relationship was was difficult because um Seward hadn't forgotten that he was the odds-on favorite to be the Republican nominee <laughs> and that lincoln didn't have many qualifications hillary doesn't forget that either walter um, but one huge difference between that then and now is there really is no White House staff to speak of. It's a couple guys. When I, when I say a couple, I mean two. Um, and so Lincoln um, depends on his cabinet much more than a current president does, and in particular depends on Seward to serve not just as Secretary of State dealing with all those foreigners, but as a sounding board on recruiting issues and the choice of generals and how to run you know, the midterm election campaigns. Um, so Seward and Lincoln are very close um, by the time of the movie, early 1865. The, Seward is clearly Lincoln's best friend among the cabinet officers. He lives on Lafayette Square, um, you know, short stroll from the White House. So Seward is at the White House, Lincoln is at Seward's house, or at the State Department, which sits um, the time where the north end of the Treasury Building sits today, um, all the time, uh, talking about things. And in terms of prosecuting the war, uh, I mean, what is the Secretary of State doing to help President Lincoln prosecute the war against the South, 1861 to 1865? Uh, Well, one incident that comes to mind immediately, in in early 1862, um, the Secretary of War, Stanton, for some reason, suspends recruiting. So, um, uh, and then um, disaster down on the peninsula. McClellan is um, is stalled right at the edge of Richmond, and and, um, and it becomes clear that the North needs to recruit, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, it's Seward, not Stanton, that Lincoln sends to confer with the Northern governors to devise a way of making it look like the governors offered Lincoln rather than Lincoln demanding troops. Um, uh, And he does it very cleverly, and the troops um, begin to come forward again in 1862, the troops which ultimately win the war for the North because almost all of those who enlist in 1862 fight to the end of the war. That's right, like Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain's people from Maine and then the Ohio's and the Michigan's. I mean, they've all got to come. And Seward had considerable experience uh, in a gubernatorial job, didn't he? Right. Four years as governor of New York, which was at the time by far the most populous state. Um, And so he was very well situated to have those conversations with the governor's um, which I discovered in digging a little deeper in some cases were pretty contentious. Um, you had to go in person up to Boston to twist the arm of John Andrew, the Massachusetts governor. What fascinated me by your biography is, as you talk about people who have changed careers a lot, I mean, the research that you've done for Seward, Lincoln's indispensable man, is so comprehensive. The reviews have been so positive. And yet, Walter, you've spent most of your life after Union College and Stanford Law School uh, as a corporate and international lawyer. And only, I think, after in the late 90s and early 2000s did you begin work on John Jay and now now this book that sort of is a great companion to uh, the Lincoln movie that we're about to see in theaters. How did you decide that... um, 
legal work was going to take a back seat to the to this second career of of biography. Stanford undergrad, and and you've confused my bio and sewers there, but it's okay. Um, I was always a reader, and one evening in Hong Kong, I was coming to the end of a book, and I put it down, and it was as if I was there was a little speaker in the corner of the room. I put it down, and I was unhappy. Oh, I could have done better. You know, he he really didn't delve into that issue, yeah. and the documentation seemed a little weak there. And now it was this little voice in the back of the room saying, "So, Star, if you really think that, write a book." Yeah, and that was very you know, both exciting and troubling. It was exciting to think about the possibility of writing a book and leaving something other than just a succession of, um, you know, briefs and agreements um, that a lawyer typically would. But it was also frightening because I'd never tackled anything that big. Um, but I started reading and thinking about things that I might tackle by way of, um, I, I knew it would be American history. I, that I, I don't have the language skills or or ability to travel to say write a you know a, a history of uh, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, um, so I knew it would be American history. But but what within American history took me a while. And so how, why John Jay? I was reading about one of John Jay's friends and thinking about him as a subject, Gouverneur Morris, and I decided. Bear in mind, I'm in Hong Kong, so my ability to do research is limited, but I thought I could buy a used copy of a biography of um, Morris's best friend, John Jay. Uh, and I got this book published in the 30s, uh, and I read it. And again, it's as if there's another little voice in the room saying, Star, this isn't very good. You you can do better than this. Yeah. And and Jay, you know, Morris is interesting and a very colorful figure a definite ladies' man. But Jay, although less colorful, is far more important. And so I've, I really, by the end of that book, I really felt almost a calling to try to um, bring Jay back to life. And then why Seward? How much was the influence of Doris Kearns Goodwin's book and, and the notion of bringing to life some of the characters outside of Lincoln, the 16th president, and his cabinet? Uh, well, definitely... I mean, like most people, I knew that Seward had bought Alaska, but didn't know much more about him until I read her book, The Team of Rivals. Um, and definitely by the end of that book, I was thinking about Seward as a potential subject for next book um, and did a little research and realized that, that the last good book was uh, more than 40 years ago. So there was, a, there was an opening there. And, and I felt that although she does a good job of portraying him, and in particular his relationship with Lincoln, I, there were questions, you know. Um, I mean, um, what did he do as governor? What happened after Lincoln died? You know, what, what happened during Reconstruction, and how did he come to buy Alaska? So I felt that there was room for a book, and there were questions that, that I wanted to answer myself. So in a sense, I started work on the book to answer my own questions. Well, the last time the issue of uh, Alaska's role in the Union came up uh, and really hit the headlines was four years ago, and uh, and the governor's uh, the then governor's conversation with Katie Cork. Let's hear a little bit of that. Our next door neighbors are foreign countries. They're in the state that I am the executive of. And have you ever been in involved with any negotiations, for example, with the Russians? We have trade missions back and forth. We we do. It's very important when when you consider even national security issues with Russia, as Putin rears his head and, and uh, comes into the airspace of the United States of America, where, where do they go? It, it's Alaska. It's just right over the border. It is from Alaska that we send those out to make sure that an eye is being kept on this very powerful nation, Russia, because they are right there. They are right next to um, to our state. So Walter Starr, author of uh, Seward, Lincoln's Indispensable Man, that is our formerly indispensable governor of Alaska. And uh, you make mention of what we all know in history books as Seward's Folly, this purchase of this enormous piece of land uh, past the Yukon Territory, now so much the source of uh, natural resources uh, and uh, and Sarah Palin. Um, what What is behind this sort of textbook story of Seward's Folly, and, and why did uh, uh, Secretary of State Stewart pursue it? Seward had his eye on 
Russian America, what we now call Alaska, for a long time. In, in 1852, for example, he gives a long speech on uh, whaling, and he's urging Congress to have the Navy do a survey of the Bering Strait to facilitate whaling. Um, and a little bit later, during the Civil War, when he hears that the, the Tsar's brother is interested in a sale, uh, he writes to the Russian, the, sorry, the American minister in Russia to say, get him over here, let's talk. Um, so it's not a sudden thing when in early 1867 he learns that the Russians are prepared to sell, that he you know, eagerly launches a negotiation. The negotiation is very short, less than a month. Um, the treaty is announced. I think it's a bit of a myth to say that it's kind of immediately mocked as Seward's folly. Um, the initial reaction is favorable, and I think that's proved by the vote in the Senate two weeks after the treaty is announced. It's approved by the Senate with only two dissenting votes. Um, senators don't generally vote for things they consider foolish. And one part of the deal didn't go through the effort to get British Columbia and create a continuous passage from Washington State, right? Right. There is more than a little evidence that one reason um, Seward was keen to get Alaska um, was that he it would sort of surround British Columbia because remember part of Alaska is up is to the west yeah. uh, of the northern part of British Columbia and he thought that would place pressure on the British and he was trying to place pressure on them in other ways to yield uh, British Columbia and there was sentiment on the ground there I quote some newspaper reports of uh, from the Victoria British Columbia newspapers um, saying that you know the best thing that could happen to this colony is annexation to the United States. So his hopes of getting British Columbia were not um, unreasonable. Uh, it just didn't quite work out the way he wanted to, in part because uh, the Canadian Confederation comes into the picture and becomes a more attractive option for them. As we're coming down, Walter Starr, to the end of the current Secretary of State's uh, four years in office, I want to hear a little bit about what uh, Secretary Clinton said on the eve of the second presidential debate between President Obama and Governor Romney. I take responsibility. I'm in charge of the State Department, 60,000 plus people all over the world, 275 posts. Uh, the president and the vice president uh, certainly wouldn't be uh, knowledgeable about specific decisions that are made by security professionals. You know, the parallels between 2008 and 1860 are so many, including, I think, uh, at the time, Seward's reference to uh, Abraham Lincoln as a little Illinois lawyer. And that certainly could have described a, a two-year senator and before that a state senator from Illinois, Barack Obama. What persuaded Seward to sort of take this number two role and become Lincoln's confidant and sort of wingman during the Civil War? Well, he wasn't entirely sure that he wanted it in the spring of 1861, but of course, um, well, there are a couple things. One is that in the 19th century, um, the Secretary of State was um, much more than today sort of the president-in-waiting. So, you know, Madison is the Secretary of State for Jefferson and becomes president, and there are a number of other examples. Not all of them make it. Daniel Webster serves as Secretary of State and assumes that he'll be president, but doesn't become president. So that's one reason to take the job. But another, and I think bigger reason, is the country's falling apart. Yeah. Um, you know, at the moment that Lincoln writes to Seward offering him the job, um, that's almost to the day, the moment that South Carolina secedes from the Union. And um, Seward's friends, you know, urge upon him that you know, whatever he might think in normal circumstances, these are not normal circumstances. You you have to do this. The the country is, um, you know, may may not survive. As we let you go, uh, Walter, there there are so many portraits painted of Abraham Lincoln and his wife Mary uh, as you know, um, somewhat socially awkward and uh, and difficult to sort of embrace. The Washington social life, not uh, not entirely different from some of the uh, the criticisms that are made of our current president and his ability to backslap and and be a raconteur. And yet, the picture you paint of Seward, uh, I think the words are um, his indulgence in claret and cigars. Tell us about this man from a social perspective and how he was able to work within Washington. Um, well, even before he gets to Washington, Seward loves the social side of politics. He loves meeting new people and 
and making making friends of them and not just other politicians he diplomats army officers um actresses um the leading shakespearean actress uh, charlotte cushman is a personal friend um and he does as you say he's fond of cigars he's almost never seen without his cigar and he's fond of a drink um there are those who say that he drinks too much but um those who observe him most closely say that he you know, drinks for pleasure but not to drunkenness but he is um you know almost never alone in the evening um, during the Civil War period, and he's almost always either a guest at someone else's house or more frequently even has, has guests around his dinner table there in Lafayette Square. Before we let you go, Walter, tell us about that night in April 1865 when John Wilkes Booth and his cohort tried to decapitate the government. Uh, Booth um, intends to kill not only the president but the vice president and the secretary of state. Um, there are different theories about why he targets uh, Seward. My personal theory is that as a Shakespearean actor, he wanted a different ending for Julius Caesar. He wants to have both the tyrant Lincoln and the co-tyrant Seward dead. Uh, and he nearly succeeds. Um, Seward is confined to his bed by injuries in a prior accident. Uh, the assassin bursts into Seward's bedroom with a pistol in one hand, not not working because he'd been using it as a club out in the hallway, uh, but a six-inch bowie knife in the other, um, presses Seward into his bed, slashes down um, uh, on Seward's face and neck, um, but doesn't sever arteries, and um, or doesn't sever the, the, the critical arteries, I should say, um, because Seward bleeds like a fish, but, yeah. uh, but Seward survives. And the closing chapters of his life in public service after uh, President Lincoln's death and President Johnson's term are? Well, he serves all the way through President Johnson's term, so the full eight years from when uh, when Lincoln is inaugurated until the inauguration of Ulysses Grant in March of uh, 1869. Um, and then... Um, retires but doesn't stay put. He spends most of the remaining three years of his life traveling, first out west to California, Alaska, Mexico, and then actually around the world to Japan, China, uh, India, the Middle East. He was very keen to see the Suez Canal uh, and Europe. Um, so um, although he's he's failing physically, he's um, his spirit uh, compels him to keep in motion. And you, sir, are keeping in motion, too, with what I see on your website is a very uh, ag aggressive uh, tour around the country talking about your masterly portrait uh, of a uh, indispensable American public servant, uh, Seward, um, Lincoln's indispensable man, Walter Starr, the author, getting huge acclaim, uh, just as Steven Spielberg's new biopic of Abraham Lincoln is about to hit theaters. Thanks so much for coming by Polyoptics today, sir. Thank you. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.